Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Yeah, but the data, the data. That's true. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, first they came for Charles Murray, and you said nothing. Then they came for sushi at Oberlin, and you said nothing. But now they've come from one of our own. For years, you've dismissed all the claims about wokeness encroaching on freedom of expression. Do you still think cancel culture isn't real? I, uh... Once it happens to one of my own, uh, now now I'm convinced. <laughs> now this is the worst thing to happen since, I don't know, the submarine thing? Is that too soon? <laughs> well, there's a lot of controversy about how bad that was. You right. know? Um, but yes, uh, we are going to be talking about Yoel Inbar's adventure applying to UCLA. Scoop. It's a scoop. This is a very a this is a BBW journalistic scoop. Yeah. Are, are the people at fire right now just being like, God damn it. Like <laughs> I, I throwing down their headphones. I turned down the New York Times for you guys. I just want you to know and appreciate that. Is that really true? Yeah, that's actually that's true. So I'm Well, yeah. he talked to the New York Times. <laughs> this is awesome. This is breaking. Um and it is a really interesting story that raises a lot of questions in arenas that we've talked about and Maybe not been quite as, we didn't take them quite as seriously as some of our listeners would like us to, for sure. Right. I mean, your masterful deflection at asking me the question is really what everybody's asking about you. And I'm getting DMs like, is Tamler going to change his mind? Because, you know, but you don't have DMs open. <laughs> that's right out of my playbook, Trump's playbook. You just immediately accuse the other person, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, but first, this is a real, like, psychology is going to take a hit. Psychology on a, a couple different fronts is going to take a hit this episode. So uh, in the first segment, we're going to talk about a, another fraud case coming out of big psychology. <laughs> this time, Francesca Gino. And ironically, and people have noted the irony, uh, fraud was discovered in a bunch of her studies on honesty. It's just too, it's too good. We should introduce <laughs> Yoel first. Yes, Yoel Inbar. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. It's been a while. Hey, thanks for having me back. Don't think that I haven't noticed you doing all these movie episodes without me. I've been keeping <laughs> yeah. score. I've been taking names. <laughs> I'm not happy. Uh, all right, so what's, what's the deal with this one? Who are these gumshoes at Data Colada just working tirelessly to preserve 
scientific integrity, who uh, do all this sleuthing yeah, to so uncover this stuff. This is uh, three guys, uh, Yuri Simonson, Joe Simmons, uh, and Leif Nelson. And they do, uh, I mean, they do their own research as well, but kind of a sideline is doing methods in psychology. So I think the most cited paper in psych science ever is their 2012 paper about p-hacking in which they, I believe, actually coined that term. Um, so they showed in wow. that paper that if you follow the reporting practices that were prevalent at the time, which meant that there's a lot of stuff that didn't go into the write-up, um, you could basically present anything at all as statistically significant. So they presented a study showing that listening to songs made you either older or younger, depending on the song. Um, it was a big deal and like a cool paper and had a big impact. And they have a blog, Data Colada, where they talk about I, I think broadly stuff around like data, quantitative methods, um, research trustworthiness. And they have a little bit of a sideline in talking about fraud cases. And the first one I think that they really, that that blew up, that they looked at was this paper that Dan Ariely, a uh, friend yeah. of this show, was a co-author on um, that ultimately ended up being retracted. So this was a paper in PNAS, a uh, very high-profile journal, that purported to show that people are more honest when they sign before they make some declaration than afterwards. And it turns out that the field study in that paper was fabricated. And it's still not quite clear by whom. Um, Dan worked with an insurance company. They may have done it. On the other hand, you know, he may have done it. He denies it, obviously. This paper was three studies. That field study, which was the basis of the retraction, um, that was the third. There were two other studies in that paper, both run by Francesca Gino. Those were lab studies. So with, I think, undergraduates, the both of them. And it turns out that independently, those studies also were falsified. <laughs> so this paper about honesty independently had um, three fabricated studies in it. Um, you would be falsified. like such a hack if you tried to, to write, write this, this script, up. As, right? as yeah, like it's a, too, yeah. way too on the nose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I should be clear, you know, people sometimes distinguish between um, fabrication and falsification. So like fabrication might be you, you just completely make up the numbers, whereas falsifying might be altering data, right? And that's I think what's alleged to have happened in these first two studies is that the data were altered. Do you see an ethical difference between those two? No. I don't, I, fraud I don't is fraud, all, I think. Yeah. I mean, we were talking uh, literally like five minutes before we started recording about the difference between p-hacking, even sloppily p-hacking, and, and fraud. And I think there's a moral difference there. But fraud, whether you do what was accused what Francesca's being accused of here, like dragging and dropping numbers from one column to the other, like it doesn't make any difference whether right. or not that was typed in. And the fabrication is like more work because you actually have to just come up with plausible sounding numbers, right. whereas all, you already get those and then you can just manipulate them a little bit. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, although if you yeah, alter, like, you do have to run the study, right? So that is, that's <laughs> yeah. more work. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <clears throat> that's right. Because Stoppel was just sitting there with the glass he of wine. He would literally, yeah, <laughs> yeah, numbers right, into right. Excel. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. He just he never like, even ran the study. No, 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 he never did. that's the he fuck. Just, like, yeah, yeah, just made it up. And uh, this is something that people are accusing Gino of as well, of being like, hey, I'll run that study for you, which is pretty unusual for a senior person to just be like, oh, right. I'll collect those data, right? And that's what yeah. he would do. He, was he would collect data for his students, which, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah, if you've ever, that's, that's just completely ridiculous. Like right. the students collect data for us. That's how it works. Right. <laughs> right. And in fact, for listeners who, who may not know or remember, um, Yoel was a key figure in bringing Stoppel to justice at the University uh, of Tilburg, or Tilburg University. Yeah, so that was me uh, and two grad students who were there at the time. Yeah, 
So Yoel is very familiar with this kind of sleuthing as well as being friends with the guys from Data Colada. Um, Remind us yeah. what you did, like like just the three key bullet points in what you did for Stoppel. So we looked for internal inconsistencies. So if you're just fabricating, you're just inventing um, data, it's actually hard to make them consistent in the way that they're supposed to be. So it might be a scale, for example, has four items in it. And what you want to do is you want the average value to be higher here or lower there. If you're just generating by hand without using an algorithm or anything, it's hard to make the items correlate the way that they should. So for example, that would be one thing, like scales that showed a really strong effect with respect to the manipulation, but they're it's called reliability, just how well do those items correlate with each other, was basically at zero, right? So how does that happen? Yeah, you're just sitting there like typing in numbers, trying to make the average equal something higher here or something lower there. Uh, the other stuff that he would do, which is odd because he was just inventing, is he would sometimes like duplicate rows. So you'd literally see entire rows that were repeated throughout the data. Set. He started phoning it in. Exactly. He started phoning it in. He couldn't be bothered to do all that typing. You know, It's RSI. like if a Danny McBride character was like, <laughs> like doing his psychology. <laughs> it, was not, it was not the most competent data faking. Right? And it just speaks to how, you know, Know, there was no oversight. There was no auditing. You really didn't need to worry that somebody was going to be looking through your data files, trying to find implausibilities. It's just like nobody was thinking to do such a thing. Good old. Here's days. one egregious like a uh, um, example of the lengths to which he was going. So, so you all just said that he he was claiming to collect the data, but like to keep the pretense going, he would fill up a box with questionnaires, say he's going to a local elementary school to collect the data, and like actually print them out, copy them, and and take like whatever, you know, if we would give like candy in exchange for completing whatever, pencils, whatever. It'd be like, logo, load up his trunk while everybody's looking at him like, oh, I'm going to go collect the data for the study and then just go home, have a glass of wine and type numbers into yeah. Excel. I think we talked it, about this. I have a very like image in my mind if this was filmed <laughs> of him kind of <laughs> dancing around the room with all these questionnaires <laughs> and like ta- a dash here, a dash here, a check mark there, an X there, you know, like uh, to classical music. <laughs> I picture more like Tom Cruise with the sunglasses sliding across the wooden floor, you know? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's not what's alleged to have happened here. In, in the Gino case, it looks like somebody really did collect the data. They're from real people, but then that the data were tampered with. Um, and the data Colada folks a year ago went to Harvard with this evidence about four papers that they suspected had had their data altered. Um, that convinced Harvard to launch an investigation internally. Uh, at this point, the investigation is done. Um, they've written a 1,200-page report, which nobody outside of Harvard has seen as far as I know, and Gino is on leave. And they're requesting the retraction of these papers. So what I take from all that is that these allegations are correct, right? That these data actually were untrustworthy. And I think important to know, many of these data were collected using Qualtrics, which is like a survey hosting platform. You have your surveys hosted on your institutional Qualtrics, so Harvard um, pays for a Qualtrics account for its researchers. They can see all your surveys and results. Right? So it would be trivial for Harvard to take the surveys that correspond to those published studies and to just compare. Right? Mm. Does the, the raw data deviate from the data that were, that were shared okay. as the data underlying the studies? Right? It's, it's actually very easy if you have that. Um, so the fact that Harvard seems to have decided, yeah, this is legit, 
makes me think that these these things that they're talking about in the in the blog as being potential indicators of fraud did end up actually being indicators of fraud, right? So evaluate this not just based on what they've put out on the blog, but on the fact that Harvard, having all of these resources and this ability to really check um, the results, has decided that these papers need to go. Which is an important thing to say in this case, because already there have been some people who accuse the data colada guys of of jumping the gun, right? From the work that they've shown, like, I don't think they're the, they're, I think they dot every I and cross every T. Like, I don't think they would do that. The fact that they handed it over to Harvard and Harvard reached this conclusion with that big report matters because it just corroborates that whatever analysis these guys did um, turns out to be right. And I don't even think you need the Harvard analysis from what I saw, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a novice when it comes to that stuff. Um, and so, so, uh, but let me play devil's advocate, you all. These are your boys. Uh, who died and made them cops? Well, you know, the thing is that we're all the cops. That is our job as scientists, right? We tell the public, you should trust us because we check each other's work. That is our pitch to them. That's why we say you ought to believe the scientific consensus rather than, I don't know, what RFK Jr. is telling you. Um, and so it turns out that in this case, when it comes to data fraud, there are no police. There's no formal way um, of looking for this stuff. There's no formal body to whom you can report it. And so it's on the people who work in this field to keep an eye out for this stuff and to follow up on stuff that seems bad. Now, not everybody's going to be good at that. Not everybody's going to have the skills or the inclination for it, because honestly, it's not something that I would recommend an early career person do, because people do get mad at you. Um, and there aren't really formal rewards for it. But I say if people are motivated to volunteer to do this stuff, um, God bless them. We need that. Clearly, you need it. Like this stuff okay. has been going on for okay. so long, and got and, okay. and it's probably just a drop in the ocean, right? Like, I, I like, I like yeah. w when your question, like, devil. I know it was devil's advocate, but I don't even understand the reasoning behind the question. It's like, like I mean, a for saint. somebody who has, who, for somebody who has uh, expressed disdain for snitches, I think you can see where the question comes from. Oh well, so if that's the idea, if the idea is don't snitch. Yeah. The idea is keep like, it in house. To take it uh, to take it upon yourself. Like there's not even pressure being put. You're not getting years shaved off your sentence. You're like volunteering your time to ruin people's careers. So so to speak, right? But I, people I who have I, fabricated, yeah, like who are just committing like pur purportedly. That's the whole point, though. Like <laughs> you don't know until you find it. <laughs> they've started. Obviously, they volunteered to find it before they know that it's true. Well, true. That that's right. But then yeah. Yoel says if there's if there's no institutional body that's doing it, it seems like you have to do it as internally as a field. And it's going to have to be from people just trying to maintain the integrity of the the field as a whole. Yeah. You know, yeah. where where I kind of agree with this line of thought is I do think you could say it might be in some cases irresponsible to publicize these sorts of allegations if you're not confident enough. Right. And David, you and I have been involved in a case where we, I am personally 100% convinced that um, yeah. data were fabricated and we couldn't prove it to the point where yeah. we were comfortable going public with it or even going to the institution yeah. with it. So we dropped it. We alerted that we alerted co authors. We alerted co authors, but that was it. Them, yeah. 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 And to be fair, like, I don't, I, obviously, I don't believe what I was saying. Like, I, I think the data clouded guys are doing the Lord's work in this. 
And I, I, do, I do, like Francesca is a friend of mine, although I haven't talked to her in a long time. And like, it, it actually pains me. Like it actually, I'm very, I'm kind of, I was telling you all, like I'm kind of like just like upset about the situation because I didn't think, and this is the problem with this shit. You just never think that people are capable of it because the whole endeavor depends on people signing up to do this because they're have some level of honesty about what it is they're doing. And it, blows my mind that anybody is going to be like here's how i'm going to make myself famous i'm going to like choose like a career in this like field that already has like very questionable uh impact on the world and, and research publish papers and, and research practices i'm going to publish papers yeah. about things that like might not even matter if they're true and fake them except that it's not that hard to understand she was getting 50 to a hundred thousand dollars for speaking gigs you don't get that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean look the incentives are there right there it, there's real yeah. money at the high end and even if you're like okay i'm not gonna fake that dramatically and i'm gonna settle for a comfortable job at a state school that's a pretty damn good job like this is a pretty easy job if you don't actually have to do the research and so yeah, yeah why why aren't we being overrun by people who are uh, drawn to this and are like, wow, it's so easy to fake. Nobody checks up on you. Can I give my conspiracy theory, which is in part <clears throat> oh, an boy. answer to this question? Yes. But it goes deeper than that. Um, I don't think you guys will love this, but I think- We're losing you as a rational human being. <laughs> Wait, I want to hear this. This is sad. I want to hear this. <laughs> uh, I think Francesca Gino is taking one for the team here. I think- like whoever's in charge, the Illuminati psychology people, big psychology, whatever, they set it up. So every few years there's a big fraud case that raises eyebrows about research and psychology and all of that and, uh, in order to distract from the deeper me methodological problems in the field. So it's like Weebay at the end of season one of The Wire just copping to like every murder he could think of to protect the Barksdale's family. It's actually pretty admirable because you think like, oh, my God, there are these famous detectives, you know, like these guys at Data Collada and they are they are on the case. So besides these fraud cases and the replication crisis, this is where it, like it takes it to another level. Everything's fine. You know, nothing going on. The replication crisis similarly is allowed to come to light by these uh, people, the order, again, in order to distract from the potentially fatal methodological flaws that are at the edifice of the whole field. That's, I think, if you want to st stay friends with Francesca Gino, like it, it, there is something kind of honorable about what she's doing. Yeah. Um, only because like there's like below 50% of your mind believes what you just said, but like a way higher number that I want uh, to be true <laughs> believes what you just said. Can I just say- 10% of my mind. You've probably yep. spent more time watching The Wire than you have spent reading the blog that showed that uh, Francesco was faking her data. Two, the very measurement well, problems that true, you- but that's not. <laughs> like, there were five seasons of The Wire. <laughs> How closely yeah. did you expect me to read the, the, the blog post? <laughs> Um, two, the whole, like the only reason you even think that there are methodological and measurement problems is because psychologists themselves have bothered to point it out. And like the data colada guys bothered to do the p-hacking thing that like surely convinced you that there are problems. Right. In psychology. No, I know. So it's like, like it's, it's, so it's, we're doing all the work here. You're just like 
following along somehow. Saying, I didn't say that I was like a, an important part of no, this no, no. But psychologists themselves are the ones who are undermining the very thing that you think that we're protecting. Sure. Like, you know, that's always the case. <laughs> when a big conspiracy is exposed, it's the people internally uh, that bring it to light. Huh. I, I, I kind of wish that were true. Yeah. I mean, like, I, yeah. I wish that this, like, theory, which basically requires that, like, by focusing people on this, you're making them in some ways like the field more than they would otherwise or ignore other problems more yeah. than they would otherwise. I wish that were true. I really don't think it is. I think now people think, oh, there are a bunch of p-hackers and also some people make up their data and those people don't get caught for decades. And it just yeah. like, it really, it looks terrible yeah, right. for I all I thought there us. were four things wrong. Yeah, exactly. Now there's, and this is an extra yeah. indictment, right? Just like, just keep yeah. piling up the indictments. I mean, it sucks. It sucks mostly for students and collaborators, but it also sucks for all of us who are trying to do things honestly and now who are tainted by association with these kinds of large-scale frauds. You know what, it, like, the analogy almost beat for beat is, like, performance-enhancing drugs in, like, cycling or something like that. You have this group of people, like, at the top of their profession, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, there's all this downward pressure. Well, if we're going to be a little loose about our practices, then we all have to do it just to keep up. So there's built-in, like, rationalizations already. And it's probably in the same thing when you're looking at the motivation of those people. It's like these little incentives can just get you... a gradually a step uh, away from actually doing it honestly. Yeah. And it, there's no reason to think that that's true only in psychology, right? There's this these incentives to do fraud or, or to p-hack. Uh, they're present in lots of disciplines, right? So, yeah. and, you know, people have found fraud in biology, um, in medicine, in, in other fields as well, huge, right? Huge, yeah. like, yeah. problem in medicine. Yeah, and they're at least, look, at least we're just giving people bullshit advice based on our fraudulent research, right? Like, we're not, we're probably not killing anybody. <laughs> You're not, like, bombarding them with chemicals. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we try. <laughs> yeah, nobody would like The IRB always yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> study you want to run. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> No, but I think Tamler, what you said is is exactly right, and like push the analogy even further that there really is a sense that I can tell palpably in my even in my students who are by and large super into rigor, like in trying their best to be transparent and stuff. You take a look at the people who are publishing like ten million things a year. And you're just like you're just like the up and comer who sees Lance Armstrong winning everything, and you know, like you just know in your heart of hearts that he's not doing it fairly. So you're just like, okay, do I run the risk of never having a real career in this field, in this sport, in this discipline, and keep doing what I'm doing honestly, and maybe wait for those guys to like get taken down, or uh, do I just <laughs> start p hacking myself, you know? You know, because otherwise you can't you can't survive in it. Like there was a time in cycling where if you weren't doing drugs, there was just no way you could uh, be successful as a professional at it. And what what people like Francesca are accused of doing is even in my mind worse. It would be like Lance yeah. Armstrong, you know, sneak, starting the race and then take, sneaking in a car, taking a shortcut and finishing <laughs> right. the race. You know? Like in the Boston Marathon, <laughs> like yeah. the woman who took the subway. I love that. She took the green line. And and uh, it's also an apt analogy because the the thought that this that woman might have had in the Boston Marathon is like, no one's really looking. Yeah. Like there are tons of people <laughs> running the marathon. And that has to be what's going on with the fraud, which is 
there were errors that, if correct, are such rookie mistakes. The thought must be no one's ever going to bother looking because once they bother looking, like house of cards, dude, like it's so it's so easy to spot if you know where to look now. I will say Shame. once you know where to look, like having spent yeah, yeah. some time at like actually looking, it's it's a lot of work. And I can see yeah. why people aren't usually motivated to do this. It's just like people have better ways to spend their time. And I get that. Tamler, I'm curious I'm curious, Tamler, from your perspective, what the rate of fraud is in I mean take psychology, but like I don't know. Um uh what percentage of researchers do you think have engaged in outright fraud? Like what Francesca yeah. uh, Gino is accused of? Yeah, that level. Yeah. I wouldn't think it was that high, actually. Like, uh, I do think there are a lot of cheaters in life, but, you know, I would think that the more alarming percentages were, were more at the level of using the methods uh, flexibility yeah. to get a more desired result. But I, I wouldn't think, yeah, I don't know. But I, but I wouldn't think that that's the biggest problem. Like I said, I think that's a more surface problem with not, and it's not just psychology. I think a lot of the social sciences, but then also like uh, medicine. What do you guys think? Well, so my guess would be low single digits of researchers yeah, percentage um, have, have ever, um, you know, altered yeah. or fabricated Outright data. Fraud. Yeah. The Leslie John um, and uh, Drajan Prelik and George Lowenstein paper where they're estimating the prevalence of different uh, undesirable research practices in psychology. And they have a fancy mathematical method by which they say they can get around the fact that you're not likely to say, hey, I did fraud, right? Um, so their estimate based on that method is like between one and 2%. So I'd say like in that order of magnitude would be my guess. That, that yeah. seems plausible. Yeah, because like also you don't want to overly, like you don't want to give the people the impression that really everybody's doing it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, like David was saying, but maybe really people do think like, well, fuck it, you know, if everybody else is doing it, YOLO. Yeah, and plus they probably <laughs> believe that their hypothesis is true, you know, like. Uh, and that was clearly Mark Hauser's motivation, yeah. right? When, when he got caught, it was like, that was actually, in retrospect, a fairly tame version of fraud, where he just like altered a couple numbers because the Coding. wasn't quite significant, yeah. and yeah, and uh, and because he was like, well, like this has to be true, right? From everything I know about, how, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> makes So if you yeah. think that, and they know that if they like ran it again, maybe it would be significant. You know, I could see it. You, you know what's kind of crazy to me is that. Um, these authors, um, like themselves, posted the data um, on whatever open science, and the authors were involved in an attempt to replicate their own findings and reported that they failed to replicate them. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so either this was being driven by the the good co-authors, quote unquote, <clears throat> or it's just all like a fucking smoke screens like a yeah like a misdirection in keeping <laughs> with my conspiracy theory no actually. no very different <laughs> these are the same people trying to keep, keep us has she released any statement not that i've seen no i i would guess that she's under legal uh instruction to not say anything at this point if i had to guess um yeah. What's going to suck is like when either Yoel or I get caught. I know. Yeah. yeah. For all we talked. I will. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be very embarrassing for us. 
for me especially, you know, because <laughs> I believe that you two ha- like would never do this. That you have like a real. Uh, it just seems to me like it's so not worth it. And I think maybe I uh, like I'm not under the pressures of a career like yeah. somebody like Francesca. Um, I I just can't. I don't think I could be bothered. Like if I'm not, you know, sh- we've we have shitty weak findings uh that i'm fine with yeah like, I don't need to. yeah yeah it's like yoel said this is a good job like you don't like without <laughs> doing know. that you know right i i get the financial incentives for for somebody like gino to fabricate for somebody like us it's just it's i i don't feel it would be worth it to be honest and it sort of contradicts what i said earlier but like for me personally it's just the reason that I do this and like deal with all the annoyance of the research and publication process is like we're supposed to be doing something real. And if you're like just making it up, it just seems like what's the point? It's like doing the cheat code where you get like invincibility or infinite lives or whatever. Like the game's not fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like playing Soma right. on safe mode. I've <laughs> <laughs> been still dying. <laughs> still dying. And the stress of it. Like, yeah. like, I, like you know, yeah. like, because I'm sure there's a good four or five months where you know this, you just have this like, uh, sort yeah. of Damocles hanging over your head at any yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't uh, Stoppel like relieved? So he said, Didn't he say, I don't know. This yeah. is all like how much do you trust the self-report of a serial fabricator? But, but why? Yeah. What reason would we have <laughs> yeah, not to trust him? He's like a trustworthy guy. <laughs> it it yeah. must yeah. be incredibly stressful, particularly once you feel them closing in. Dostoevsky wrote a whole novel. About this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like if these are true, how often do you think she's done this? The data clada people say possibly dozens of papers. Wow. Yeah. It's going to be, just for the, I really feel for the co-authors, it's going to be a huge fucking mess. Like, cleaning all of this up, like, anything that she touched is going to be suspect. How do you tell whether the data from a study that she ran are reliable or not? Like, I don't think there's, it's going to be very tough to say that they are, right? To, To assure yourself, like, to be the amount of confident that you would need to be that those data haven't been altered. And then it might be that you end up retracting a paper where like she contributed one study that's now suspect that might not even have been yeah. falsified, right? I, it, right? It's such a cluster. Now the burden of proof is more on. Right? Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe there's things you can do by going back to our Qualtrics and like Harvard presumably did and, and comparing, you know, the raw data from Qualtrics, but it's older. Just, we're, not, we're just not set up for this. We're not. Like it, it would become like a completely, it's not scalable right now, like to to mistrust most work that's put out there, you know? Like the amount of work that it would take. And there there could be structural solutions. Like I was talking about this and just saw, just saw I think you're retweeting about it. You know, I think it would be ideal if Qualtrics, if you could like, once you collected data, Qualtrics could verify that you haven't touched it. Um, uh, and that gets automatically published. There are ways in which you could try to combat this, but all of this is like assuming that this is probably a bigger problem than it is. And it would take a ton of resources and time and all, probably altruism that people aren't willing to put in. It, so, so it's like a you know it's like any game theory where a, pop, a population of cheaters can be yeah, can can be stable, right? Like where you just have a stable population of cheaters. It does seem like you could take some steps though as a yeah, as a field. I mean, maybe we could just inquire. We could even inquisit. We could call it. 
a grand inquisition of sorts. I mean, to, to, uh, like, yeah. to, to give a little bit more of a pitch for this. So if you imagine something like we want to archive data at the earliest possible stage, so that might be like it's on Qualtrics' servers, you know, the way it's come in from the participants, or maybe the output from Inquisit or whatever other like experiment software that you're running locally. And that needs to be archived for any paper that's published, right? And ideally, that would be through like the Qualtrics API so that they can vouch for, hey, this hasn't been tampered with at all. But then... It's not just fraud that you might detect by having that sort of a system. It also, I think, much more common than fraud is just innocent mistakes. You know, you accidentally delete some observations and forget about it or something like that. Like, yeah. there's a lot of manual like data with, cleaning that still happens, right? Like what we were talking about with the genomics where Excel switched numbers because it automatically converted what they thought was a string value to like a date Right, value. right, right, right. Excel loves to call everything a date, right? There's there's all sorts of like mistakes that you can make that are totally innocent that happen between when the data are collected and the data file that you would probably post on like the OSF or something like that. And having that be auditable and checkable, I think would be valuable even if we're not worried about fraud per se. I think we should do all of those things. I guess what I'm saying though is that... Um, even in an instance where you have all of those checks in place so that if you do uh, express concern about any given thing, you can go look at it. It's still like you have to make the choice to look at it. So like, let's use pre-registration as an example. Thousands of studies have been pre-registered now. And so that's all available. You can go and look at someone's pre-registration. How many people have gone and looked at pre-registrations? Yeah. It's low because the work is still there to be done. Even if the information is there, like, let's say this, even if the data is there, the information isn't, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, and all of this is just more stuff that would need to be checked by somebody. And like we yeah. talked about right now, who is somebody? It's whoever decides to volunteer their time outside of all the stuff that they're already doing. There is the the Dutch problem, I'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they're assholes. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are people that make this uh, all harder for for lots of people because um, there are very disagreeable uh, people who 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 either don't know how to communicate their concerns without being like needlessly callous or accusatory, or there are people who get off on on uh, the Schadenfreude of pointing out other people's errors, and I, I think the none of the data cloud guys are like this at all but there has to be like a little bit of policing of the police too right that but is, that's not the problem uh, yeah and and i don't no no it's just an additional I, problem i think that like you can differentiate between people who have bad tone and who are jerks which i do i do think yeah. that's not savvy and that they should stop and people who just make a lot of wild accusations those people exist too for sure and i think those people very quickly get ignored like about conspiracy yeah exactly you're like oh it's on this conspiracy theory thing again <laughs> And we'll just quietly roll our eyes. Sweep it under the rug. <laughs> distract the listeners from what's really going on. Uh, anyway. It's working. It's working. My point was Dutch people in general. I wasn't sp singling out any Dutch people in psychology. Dutch people in There's general are assholes. Yeah, 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 they're yeah. very like bad willed people <laughs> no and there's where i agree with the distinction that you all made like there are people who who do a good job and who don't know how to communicate it well the, I, the reason that it's top of mind to me right now is because i i personally like i'm fine with fairly disagreeable people that's why i'm friends with yoel and tambler but there is a, con a very vocal contingent of people who believe that the whole enterprise is undermined because of the the behavior of like of some of the most vocal uh, 
accusers. And I think you're right, Tamler. You should separate the two. You should be able to separate. Like if it's wrong, it's wrong. Like it doesn't matter. But there is a subtle PR aspect to the whole endeavor. And the Data Colada guys are actually very, I think, savvy about the PR aspect of it, um, at least in the way that they're careful about what they say. Yeah, I get that sense too, just from reading them, and and, and not at the expense of giving the facts and telling yeah. it straight. All right, uh, when we come back, we are going to give you an exclusive report about practices of a more political nature that occurred to our own Yoel Embar. Tragedy upon tragedy. Really. <laughs> Real what a downer, downer of an episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go to go, go into philosophy, students. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. How much time do you spend on yourself in a given week? And how much time do you spend on other people? And how do you balance the two things? This is a tough balance for all of us because it's really easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. But when we spend all of our time given, we can feel stretched too thin, burnt out, and then we can't really be there for others either. Therapy can give you the tools to find this kind of balance, or at least to better find this kind of balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. Therapy can offer so many benefits. We're going to do an episode on this about different kinds of therapy and, and what it can offer. I know so many people who have turned their life around because they went to therapy. Therapy is so helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, how to feel more confident, how to feel more empowered and live a more flourishing life. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash V-B-W. Thanks, as always, to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who support us, who reach out. We really appreciate all the emails. I know we always say this, but it's true. We've gotten some absolutely beautiful emails lately, and we thank you for that. We read all of them, even if we can't 
reply to more than a fraction of them. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at us, at verybadwizards, at peas for David, at Tamler for me. You can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the lively Reddit community. I'm scared to see what that's going to be like after this episode. And you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which really helps us. We really appreciate those of you who take the time to do that. It's very fun. We get a little weekly update and we see any new reviews and, um, and we love them. And if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, there are a bunch of options on our support page. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can buy swag. And you can become one of our beloved Patreon members. And oh boy, we have a bunch of stuff going on there. At $1 and up per episode, you can get ad-free episodes. $2 and up per episode, so $4 a month. You can access our whole archive of bonus episodes, which includes our series, The Ambulators, the episode-by-episode breakdown of Deadwood, the greatest show of all time, which, not to toot our own horn, The Ambulators might be the best podcast series of all time, including the future, including, like, so time stretched all the way into the past and all the way into the future. You can also get audio versions of our monthly Ask Us Anythings. One of those is about to drop. You get advanced previews of David and Paul's podcast, Psych. You're getting very soon a bonus episode on Inland Empire, David Lynch's in Inland Empire coming uh, within the next few weeks for sure uh, with me and the doppelgangers Jesse and Natalia although I was thinking maybe we should call ourselves the Thropplegangers. I'm keep you posted on that and now I'm announcing, very excited to announce this for the first time, a podcast mini-series that I am doing with one of my heroes, Robert Wright, and it's called Overton Windows. Uh, More info on that is also to come. At $5 and up, you get all of that, plus access to our Brothers Karamazov series, all of Dave's intro to psych lectures, a couple lectures I did on Plato's Symposium, and then at $10 and up, our highest tier supporters, um, you get to ask us a question every month, and we will answer it in video form for you and audio form for everybody else. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative. We're so grateful for everything that you do. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, now let's talk about what we brought Yoel on here to talk about. Not just fraud, but an experience that he recently went through. And I have to say, I was disheartened when he first told me the story. So the story um, is, in a nutshell, and we'll let Yoel tell it, the experience of applying to a job at the UC system. And uh, and we, Tamler and I, have been wanting to have you on for quite some time to talk about it. Let's just let you dive into the stories. So to just give you the context, uh, my girlfriend and I have been together uh, for a while, and we're in separate cities, and she's also an academic psychologist. So we're about a five, six-hour drive apart right now. Um, And she interviewed for and got a job at UCLA. So they made her an offer. Uh, She's actually pre-tenure, actually a really good offer with tenure um, in UCLA psych. And they were extremely excited about her. And so as the negotiations around that continued, um, she said, hey, I have a partner. Um, Would you consider him for a partner hire? And the chair said, send over the materials. So I sent my research statement and uh, CV and that stuff over. And based on that, uh, they seemed very enthusiastic. 
So they were like, he should definitely fly out. And they said to her, my girlfriend, in fact, you might want to come with him so that you can both start looking for a place here together. That's how enthusiastic they were, right? And it happened not to work for a schedule, so she didn't. Um, but uh, that was on the table and something that they were encouraging us to do. So really to kind of think of this as something where um, we ought to be strongly considering this as an option for, for us both. Um, so I went out there in uh, early, well, actually, yeah, late January, so beginning of this year. Um, and I did a two-day visit, so I had a bunch of meetings. I gave a research talk. I thought that all went quite well. And, you know, there's, sometimes there's meetings where people are really kind of interrogating you, or you could tell that they're skeptical, and they want to, like, they, they might want to try and uh, test you in some way. And these were not those sorts of meetings. It was more like, here's why it's great to live in LA. Here's why this is a great department. Recruiting. recruiting. Yeah, it's a, recruiting. yeah, it's, it's yeah. right. I think it's fair to say it's a recruiting visit. Um, the talk itself, I felt like went quite well, um, full room, good questions. Nobody was especially critical or anything like that. Um, and, uh, then I, I flew back after the two day visit and I, I really honestly, um, I felt like I had nailed it. Like it, the meetings all went well, the talk went well. There was one, well, two strange things that happened. Um, during the visit. Uh, the first is that UCLA, I believe, starting this year, has a mandatory interview with two representatives of their diversity committee. Those are both faculty members. And they asked me kind of a standard set of questions. So, you know, how do you think about teaching diverse populations? How do you think about mentorship? Do you think your research has to do with diversity and so on? All fine. Um, and then at the end, one of them said, look, it's been brought to our attention that on an episode of your podcast, you say some things that are critical of diversity statements. And I wonder, you know, whether you're prepared to defend that here in front of us. And to be honest, I wasn't um, because this episode is like four and a half years old. Um, but I said, you know, well, here's what I think about diversity statements now, which the very short version is, um, I, I think that the goals are good, but I don't know if the diversity statements necessarily accomplish the goals, right? Um, so I'm skeptical. Can you really quickly, yeah. can can you remind me in that episode for whatever, four and a half yeah. years ago, was that brought on because the yes. UC system was yes, starting to- Yes, and it was specifically okay. UCLA, right? So we did in that right. episode yeah. starting to require talk it. about yeah. UCLA starting to require it. Yeah. So I gave them my answer um, and they seemed satisfied with that. And then one of them said kind of almost apologetically, well, you know, we have some very passionate graduate students here, which is great. But what would you say to them if they were upset about this? And I was like, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess what I just told you, I don't really know what else I would say except for like, here are my actual views. So, so that was like a little bit odd. Um, and it was especially weird because this episode came out, <laughs> yeah, four and a half years ago now. Um, and the, the second kind of weird thing is in the meeting with graduate students, which is something that they do that's quite standard, um, mostly I thought it was fine. It was normal. They asked me some questions. I asked them some questions. There was one grad student talked kind of extensively about how bad the department was, how much racism there was, how there were abusive professors, how the administration was letting all that slide, which is in a recruitment visit is, is strange, right? right? So I kind of walked out of that being like, I'm not sure what was going on there. And it seems like there's more context here that I'm not aware of, but didn't think that much 
more of it. Um, maybe mentioned it to a couple of the faculty that I had dinner with, like, wow, that turned into sort of an intense conversation. I'm not quite sure what that was. And they said, essentially, well, this strike is really, the, the UC grad students had all been on strike. And they were like, yeah, this strike really, you know, caused some really hard feelings. It's been tough in the department and, you know, things are still getting back to normal. What, just, uh, can you give brief background about the strike? Yes. So uh, UC why the graduate students struck for higher wages. Um, and they, they won. They got substantial raises. It was a grade strike, is that right? Uh, yeah, they weren't. Were, they were. They, do, like they weren't doing any work, yeah. right? Including grading. Um, and apparently, this is all secondhand. But at UCLA, particularly, got really contentious, and like to the point where there was like bad blood between some of the faculty and some of the students. Faculty like get pissed if they have to. They grade. do not enjoy they grading, like, right? <laughs> yeah, as a rule, yeah. they're not fans. Um, and anyway, so I flew home at the end of that two-day visit thinking things had gone really well. I swapped some positive emails um, with people there, including the uh, the chair of the search committee. And it, it all felt like, you know, this is locked in, right? So that was uh, a Tuesday. Wednesday, I didn't hear anything. Thursday, somebody from UCLA who I hadn't met, who I didn't know, emailed me and was like, you really should see this. And he sent me an open letter that was written, I, I believe, spearheaded um, by the graduate student who had been in the meeting and who had sort of stood out um, on the basis of their behavior, uh, and but then signed on to by quite a number of other UCLA psychology graduate students, so I think 60-plus in the end. And this letter said, and I guess we'll get into the contents, um, basically that I was unhirable there because of uh, stuff that I had said on the on my podcast, specifically uh, questioning diversity statements in a different episode in which uh, I argued that SPSP, or professional organization, shouldn't take political stands around abortion. So I said, I'm personally pro-choice, but I don't think it's the job of our professional organization to take such a stand, uh, a pro-choice stand. Right. And on the basis of that, um, the, the letter said, uh, and this is a direct quote from it, that I would threaten ongoing efforts to protect and uplift individuals of marginalized backgrounds. Do Can I read the, letter, the yeah, beginning please. part? The, yeah. the first, say the first yeah. half of the letter? Okay. <clears throat> uh, dear doctors, the committee, we, the undersigned students, write to strongly recommend against the hiring of Dr. Yoel Imbar as a tenured faculty in the psychology department. We feel that serious consideration of Dr. Imbar directly conflicts with the values and standards we uphold as an institution and department committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We believe that Dr. Imbar would not enter the social area as a member committed to creating a safe, welcoming, welcoming and inclusive environment, and that his hiring would threaten ongoing efforts to protect and uplift individuals of marginalized backgrounds. Our concerns were initially raised by Dr. Imbar's podcast, Two Psychologists, Four Beers. Link in the description. So in each of the episodes, he discusses various topics relating to current events in academia, including but not limited to diversity statements, anti-racism in psychological organizations, sexism and racism on college campuses, freedom of speech, polarization, and conservatism in psychology. As he has 101 episodes, we do not intend this to be a comprehensive overview of his podcast content. Rather, critical episodes we would like to draw your attention to towards our episode 15, just when you think you're out, and episode 92, should SPSP stay out of it. Most concerning to us as students is Dr. Imbar's opposition to institutions endorsing positions on sociopolitical issues he has deemed, quote, contentious or, quote, controversial. In particular, he takes a strong stance against promoting DEI initiatives through the use of diversity statements and DEI criterion to evaluate research. He also takes a firm position against the use of diversity statements as a tool in the hiring process 
and specifically criticizes their use in the University of California system's faculty application process. In episode 15, he remarks that his, quote, skepticism about these diversity statements is they sort of seem like administrator value signaling. <laughs> Which is undeniable. <laughs> right. like, trivially true at this point. Right. Yeah. By the way, Yoel submitted one, right? You, oh, yeah. You actually absolutely. submitted one for the yeah. job, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you got to do it. Yeah, got to do it. <clears throat> you got to do it. It is not clear what good they do. This is still quoting. It is not clear what good they do, how they're going to be used. He continues, to lots of people on the left, diversity is such an obviously positive thing and says that the left fails to acknowledge that these statements, quote, signal an allegiance to a certain set of beliefs, end quote. These comments frame diversity statements as a threat to ideological diversity and reflect a a lack of prioritization of the needs and experience of historically marginalized individuals across the lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability. In contrast, our institution's position on this issue is unequivocal. Page one of the UCLA Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion FAQ proclaims equity, diversity, and inclusion are integral to how the University of California conceives of merit. So before we get on to the second part, do you want to talk at all about yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage people to go back and listen to the episode, first of all. I mean, yeah. this is over an hour of us talking, um, and you know, you can pull out selective quotes uh, that make me sound like I'm a rabid anti-diversity statement person, which I'm really not. But I do think, you know, we were on that episode questioning, um, do they do what they're purported to do? Um, and I think that I had those concerns then, and I still have them now. And kind of briefly, what those concerns are is what you want is somebody who's going to be able to teach and to mentor people from diverse backgrounds. But what you get is somebody writing about what they believe and perhaps what they've done um, to demonstrate that. And we know that that is coachable. Um, and that people who read diversity statements, and in the UC, this is kind of explicit in their coding, they read them expecting people to have a background understanding of a set of norms that not everybody does, right? So if you're talking about international students or people who come from uh, backgrounds where you don't get uh, the background knowledge of this stuff, the including working class yeah. backgrounds, including in spite working, of their right. like protection, their purported yeah. protection of class. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, so the the question is like, is the, the signal that you get from a diversity statement a, a good signal or not? Like, I am. I I do think it's really important to be able to teach to people of diverse backgrounds. It's really important to be able to be a good mentor to people of diverse backgrounds. And that does require thinking and sensitivity. I'm not convinced still that diversity statements are a good way to actually measure whether somebody has been doing that or or can do that. Um, So is there actually signal in there or is it more noise and bias? Um, And I, I think that asking whether this thing works, whether this furthers the goal that we have is super important. I agree with you that it is administration signaling. It is performative to the highest degree. I guess if I was defending them, I don't have really strong feelings about whether we should do them or not. If I was defending them, I would say, look, you're getting somebody to say something about what they can bring diversity-wise. And of course, people are going to make stuff up and they're going to try to game it or they'll be coached. But they're doing that for personal statements. They're doing that for like a large percentage of their application anyway. Doing it for another thing is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. And sometimes you might get some uh, good information. But that's my view on that. Like your position, which I totally also sympathize with like the idea that that would be something that made it 
clear that you're not committed to making marginalized people feel welcome is it, it actually is like part of the problem, right? It's like when you put all your attention on this stuff that at best like is on the periphery of like the actual problem, then you're not focusing on like the real issue, which is can EOL actually teach people uh, from these backgrounds in a way that will make them feel welcome? Like, so that's what's to me so wrong about what happened. It's like saying the replication badge uh, is not a good indicator of whether you promote the values of open science and then getting really mad at you for like not promoting the values of open science. For the record, Yoel would never say this and he I don't think I've heard him say it since this, but like I know for a fact that Yoel has mentored exactly these students from exactly these backgrounds yeah, and done a good job. At Toronto, of it. right? One of the most diverse universities in the entire world. Yes, that's all true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't and, it, God, I, I, I don't like no, to call people out as exactly. No, yeah, because you're right. That's why I'm saying it. You're not gonna say it. Like because because that's almost giving in to like the bullshit that that's right. Like your 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 behavior, I think, is fine. Like you could bother if you bother to look at the students that you've mentored, then you might find this out. Ironically, presumably your diversity statement isn't what sussed you out as a suspicious character right. here. Right? You were able to make it through presumably not raising any red flags because the diversity statement you wrote, uh, they they probably don't believe is indicative of your actual position on diversity, which is just kind of making the point. Like, yeah, that his diversity statement, if he hadn't done the podcast and all those com <laughs> yeah. conversations had just taken place in private, like everything would have been fine with the OL diversity wise, maybe even have been yeah. a plus. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And so I don't know if it's too early to talk about this, but like Tamler, I've been... To be honest, you know, I know you guys argue about this a lot, and I've been more on your side of, well, people should speak up, you know, like, and, and particularly, you know, if you're tenured um, or close to it, it's just like, what have you got to lose? Like, right. it, there's this fear that's just disproportionate to the consequences. And this has changed my mind about that a bit, right? So it's not like my partner and I necessarily would have taken this offer. Like, I love Toronto. It would have entailed moving my lab. That would have been hard. But like, this is a real, it's always better to have the offer than not. Right. So this yeah. is a real opportunity that like we didn't get and we would like to be together. And I don't want people to like cry over this for me. I have a great job that I love. I'm very fortunate. Right. I'm not I, I don't I don't want to play the victim here. But right. you're not canceled. Exactly. I'm not canceled. Mean. I still yeah. have my job. Like you're having me on this podcast. I'm still publishing. I still have my lab and my students and everything. But if you're like, hey, is there a cost to opening your mouth about this stuff? Absolutely, there is. Would I advise a junior person to take any sort of heterodox position on this publicly? Absolutely not. Because you only need to piss off a few people, right? Like, it, it just takes one or two to sink you. Just stay out of it. I see. I don't agree with you on that. I like, feel like the benefits still outweigh the costs, just in terms of your soul and, like, uh, I think also people will appreciate that you're somebody who will speak your mind. And if it... It costs you an opportunity here. It could get you an opportunity somewhere else. You know, I, I obviously like in my behavior agree with this, and like yeah. I'm, and and for me, like the risk averse thing to do now would be mm -hmm. don't talk about it, right? And I'm here exactly. talking right. to you because I right exactly it, right. 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 So I'm, I'm How like, many other jobs is this going <laughs> to exactly? <right. laughs> Good thing yeah. I like UFD, but uh, yeah, I think to be clear, you just have to be very clear-eyed about what it might cost you, right? If you're a junior person without a job or you're pre-tenure, then yeah. maybe you you really do need to think, yeah, 
this could cost me opportunities or this could prejudice letter writers against me. Um, and I do think there's an asymmetry, particularly in hiring, such that somebody's negative opinion weighs really heavily, much more heavily than somebody's positive opinion. Basically, even if you like your ratio of who likes you versus dislikes you as a result of this is, is favorable, it doesn't matter because the one disliker basically gets a veto. Like, I think that's kind of the norm. You're not going to hire somebody over the strong objection of uh, even maybe just one of your colleagues, but certainly a group of them. It's just no-go. It's not worth it. It's like it's not worth this it. other person you might like almost as much. And so uh, I just go with that one and not start a huge fight. Yeah. But like to, to push on what you said, Tamler, like a junior person who very possibly and likely if they get any job offers, it might be one and loses that job offer because they said something on a podcast like that's a huge risk i i'm not denying that it's a risk like i think oh. it's a risk i said the benefits outweigh the costs but how could the benefit outweigh the cost if you essentially just never get a job well in that case it wouldn't but <laughs> in what i'm thinking you are going to be a more attractive person in general if you're not watching your words like all the time and worried about like who i might offend or what i'm going to do that will permeate your personality and it will affect in that way how people see you that is something in general that people appreciate and then there's just the intrinsic value of not being somebody who constantly strategizing and worried about things politically now i want to be clear like if i was yoel i might not have this opinion right now i might think like i just got burned by this fire don't stick your hand in the fire again but i feel like I have benefited and I know other people who have benefited from just people thinking, oh, this is who that person is. When it comes to things that they take seriously and really believe in and are committed to, what you see is what you get. Like, I do think people appreciate that. Yeah, I guess I, I don't think that it's, an, it's an, uh, a case where you either become a disingenuous person or you say all of your It's not that you're a disingenuous politics, right? person. You're doing but a whatever it is signaling. that you think people are picking up. Like I, I like I think that that if if you are the kind of person who generally speaks their mind, you still might as a junior person uh the the costs might outweigh the benefits of speaking your mind about a, a certain small class of specific things that might sink you because one graduate student like got mad. And like I don't know that I would Obviously, I'm like you. Like in our position, I think there's no way I want to live a life where I'm concerned about saying this stuff. But like in thinking pragmatically about what to tell one of my students who's on the job market, I I think I might tell them don't. Right. Like, but isn't that a little paternalistic? You weren't like that. No, but times different were so era. different, yeah. though. It, it's not. I mean, paternalistic, if you want to call it that, like it, because a lot of the advice that we give our our students, like you know, wear a tie and all that. No, no, no. Yeah, that's not the right word. I almost like you can't swing it like I did. But I get what you guys are saying. It's a different era, yeah. maybe yeah. in that way. And that's where it, like it was like a a bit of a. It still came as a bit of a shock to me, and like I honestly I was pissed off. Like yeah. Tamla, you know, like, you all I know. knows. Like this pissed me off so much. The email is so infuriating because it would be one thing which I still think would be wrong if Yoel were the kind of person 
who actually was like it's like a little bit actually like pissed off at, right. at minorities for getting jobs. But Yoel isn't like that. Yeah. So like we know people who are. <laughs> we know people yeah. who yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> like we get a few drinks in them yeah. and they're like taking our jobs. Uh, <laughs> so so that's what makes it extra. Like and I think what makes what makes it feel even riskier to me where like. You think because Tamara, you and I say this all the time. Like I think that that people can sense where our hearts are about mm-hmm. this stuff. That's right. Um, but people could take our words, like the way that they spliced Yoel's words in that, is like it's like tar. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they edited it with like multiple angles. <laughs> I mean, look, Yoel has IDW adjacent. Yeah, so do we, and so yeah. do we. Yeah, it's true, yeah. but we're not applying out. Apparently, you know? <laughs> I clearly not anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to just defend. Yes, yes, you're actually taking a risk, and maybe like there's a ch- slight chance that this was your one chance at a job, and you blew it because you said this thing about like how old somebody should be before they get hormone treatments. Yeah, don't say that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, yeah and actually don't. <laughs> Leave that issue alone, yeah, actually. Really don't touch that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. there is a chance that that will happen. But there's also all like all these benefits, like the, which I think are fairly profound, and I wouldn't ever want to give them up. Of not always worrying about what you're going to say, and if you are a good person, and I agree, this is a huge counterexample. The what happened to UL, but if you're a good person, just trust that if it doesn't work out here, it's going to work out better there. Yeah, I so I think it's right that uh, there's a value to being able to live your life authentically. And there's a reason that I felt like I wanted to talk about this stuff, even though I knew that there was some risk to it, right? Um, I kind of can't help myself. I I think separate from that, you can say, does it raise or lower your probability of getting a job to talk about it publicly? And that I think very clearly lowers, right? But then I feel like what you're saying is, well, there's other things that are important too, right? Do you really want to live your life that way? I I am compelled by the... um the point that you all was making that one negative voice has the power to derail a job more than a positive voice has to to promote the job. And because of that, I do think objectively, look, you know, it will depend on what you value. Do you value speaking your mind about a small set of politically charged uh, topics that you, you don't think you would be being yourself if you didn't say it? Do you value that over the chance of getting a job? Maybe. And maybe you should. Right. And like on one reading of what you're saying, Tamlers, maybe you should. Maybe this is not the, the I, I do believe that too. That's also separate from just the like will this help you or hurt you job. You know, the the rogue student who can convince a bunch of students that like they're be they're on the right side of history if they have them sign this letter, which is I think a lot of what happened in Yoel's case, that they have the power to do that just I think disproportionately means I I, I think it's sage advice to tell uh, one of my students just think twice about like who you're saying what to. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscription. It monitors your spending and it helps you lower your bills all in one place. So just think for a minute about how many subscriptions you have, like streaming services, apps, or whatever. What's the total amount that you spend per month on those subscriptions? Well, if you're like the average American, you think you're paying about $80 a month, but it's closer to like $200 a month. Rocket Money 
can show you immediately as soon as you download the app, log in and give it your, your credentials, exactly what you're spending your money on and how much it is that you're spending. I was super excited to try Rocket Money because I had heard about it. And, and to be honest, the thought that I might be paying for stuff that I don't even know about was stressing me out for quite some time. And sure enough, as soon as I installed it, give it my credentials, broom, I see everything I'm paying for. And I was paying for some things that I had completely forgotten about. So right off the bat, Rocket Money saved me potentially hundreds of dollars because it had been hundreds of dollars that I had paid without even knowing it. And who knows when I would have found out on my own. In addition, though, Rocket Money has some great features because it's aggregating your financial services, your accounts. It can show you in one place in a really nice dashboard exactly the breakdown of what you're spending your money on. So if you need help budgeting, it's a really handy app for that. And it also has a service that allows you to tell them, hey, do you want to try to save me money on some of these bills? So my cable bill or my cell phone bill, a concierge, a real human being is now in charge of trying to figure out whether or not they can bring my monthly cost down. If they do, I pay a little bit of that savings to Rocket Money. And if they don't, I pay nothing. But in short, they could potentially save, end up saving me hundreds of dollars per year. And all I had to do was install the app and let it do its work. As you can tell, I'm enthused with this app. I'm excited uh, that I have it and I'm going to keep it even if they stop sponsoring Very Bad Wizards, but I hope they keep going. And if you want to stop throwing your money away, you want to cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses, the easy way, go to rocketmoney.com slash VBW. That's rocketmoney.com slash VBW. I promise you it's probably going to be worth that effort that you take because you'll, if you're like me at all, you'll find something that you didn't know you were paying for. Last time, rocketmoney.com slash VBW. Our thanks to Rocket Money for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So it just, I mean, we, we, we went on this long tangent, but just to wrap up the story, it, it, so I didn't get the job. <laughs> oh yeah, then they made me an offer. So. <laughs> right. But still, it was really right, hard. But that like, you know, it's going to be very awkward. To have to deal with it. was like two students. weeks where yeah. you weren't it's sure sucked, you were going to get right? the offer. Right. It's yeah. really a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, no. Uh, so I um, got the notice from uh, the chair of the department that they were not going to go forward with my hire the same day. Um, that I got this letter emailed to me. Um, and it was done in sort of an unusual way. So normally they would send this to a department-wide vote. But there is a, a smaller committee of three people um, who generally their job is to just, as I understand it, write up some notes and send it to the larger department for, for a vote. I think I understand that in some cases, you know, the case is just hopeless. Everybody agreed that this person sucked. And so this committee can officially give the thumbs down so that they don't have to waste everybody's time for a vote. In this case, uh, I know that many people in the department wanted a vote, but the committee, the small committee, as is their right, said, no, we're not going to proceed. And the chair mm -hmm. chose not to overrule them. So that's how it was spiked relatively quickly. Um, and I, I don't know what happened in that room. I don't know what the discussion was, right? It's possible that, you know, some people really hated my job talk and did not ask questions, but like quietly hated it. Maybe, you know, I, but probably not, probably, like, but probably not. probably not. You all gives but a really good job talk. We, you know, we, so it seems likely that this email caused the committee to say, this is just too much headache for us. Why borrow trouble, right? We can always hire somebody else. It might be pertinent that the chair of the committee that said no is the supervisor of the grad student who wrote the letter. 
I don't know how much all of that played in. This is all just speculation from the outside. But, you know, they, and honestly, if I were in this position, I might say the same thing of we just don't have it in us to have another nasty fight with the grad students. With the grad students. And it probably yeah. appeared to them as though like many, many grad students really had strong objections. I've also heard that this got sent out to the grad students for a signature with like basically two hours notice. So basically sign on to this in the next two hours and we're sending it out. And if you don't sign on- <laughs> You're a racist. Exactly. Well, we know, and we, and we, you know this for a fact because of uh, a letter that in support of UL that got yeah. sent out. Which, which we should, I I do really want to highlight that too, that there was a smaller group of students who I think very bravely wrote a letter saying, you know, no, we don't agree with this. Right. Like we don't agree with everything this guy says, Mm -hmm. but we think that the way he approaches these issues is good. We think that having uh, a respectful conversation about these questions is useful. And this is the kind of teaching that we need here, actually. Not very many students, I'll say. But like that makes it even more impressive that the ones that did sign on did that. Right, like you are really you're risking a, a really tense relationship with your yeah. peers there, and I'm I'm super impressed with them, and I think that's awesome. And yet, you if they were your students, you would tell them not to do that. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, I think I agree with you that there is value to like to to not letting things pass when you think that they're unjust. Yeah. And not to distract any more from this, just to be clear what the like impact of this is, you wouldn't necessarily have taken it. Maybe you wouldn't have gotten it at the end. But still, this was a place for you and your partner to go. You live in diff- different cities now. You would be living in the same city at a very prestigious place. Like That's a lot to lose for fairly anodyne statements that you made on, the, on your podcast. Yeah. 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 There was a real cost. And, and statements that yeah, and and uh, uh, misinterpretation. Like, there's part of this that bothers me is the like going to the podcast for you know, like there's probably yeah, like I could yeah, like, you know, we should be bothered by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. correctly. I, I will admit that part of what maybe this is just how empathy works, but uh, the thought of what would happen. To us, uh, if people really wanted to paint a nasty picture of us, did, did like we uh, need bottom. to like go back through them and just put like big <laughs> sensor beeps for <laughs> just the entire episode, <laughs> one most, long beep for most of the episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, do, uh, faculty also some faculty also wrote in absolutely opposition yeah. to this decision, and it caused some friction. I'm sure. I, I'm sure that was awkward. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like everybody there was unanimous in thinking that this was disqualifying, that, you know, you can't hire somebody who has these views. Probably most people, I mean, from what I heard individually from people there, I think many people were like, I don't see anything wrong with this. And I think that this is really unjust. But yeah, sorry, that's like, the worst sorry. thing. It's yeah. like, they just yeah. why start this fight? And what's crazy to me is that, again, like it's not... It may be the case that in, that some statements uh, that people make are diagnostic of actual uh, poor fit with the values of an institution like the UC system, but I don't think that that's the case here with you at all. It's also true, I think, I don't have data on this, but that most professors that I've ever talked to who are willing to talk in private about what they think about this kind of thing express very similar concerns. Just nobody says it in the group meeting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because why borrow trouble? I, I think it's probably what most people believe right. about. Right. Like and that's the way in which, 
I have complicated feelings about this, but that's the way in which IDW people are right. They're not good at coming up with like actual like numbers as to how uh, many people are being discriminated against because of wokeness or whatever. But that little just encroachment, that narrowing of people feeling like they can say what they believe, that definitely has costs. Like I also think they contribute to people being terrified about this stuff by constantly writing articles about it and New York Times and the Atlantic or whatever constantly publishing stuff about this. That contributes too to the problem but as this case with the OL shows like it's not not real what's happening. So it's a very complicated situation in that way. Yeah and it'd be on just like questions of fairness I think like as a social science for us like yeah. we right we want to be trusted by people who don't agree with us politically. And if it's like, I'm like well to the left of the median Democrat, right? So if I'm a no-go, we're supposed to be speaking to people like the vast majority of the country who's to my right. And I think if we keep doing this sort of stuff, like people will catch on and we will have no credibility. Like on top of all our other credibility problems. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. right. I was going to say, yeah. like, maybe like, this is if it's any consolation, right. we didn't trust is, you anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is just piling on yeah. and not really that important. Yeah. Yeah, this, I think that's probably correct. Did you know that holding a warm cup makes you actually feel warmer? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, in, in, in theory, um, we're supposed to be generating trustworthy science that people, regardless of their political orientation, can use to make better decisions, right? Whether that's personally or in policy. And I think that we will lose even more credibility in the eyes of the public if we keep going in this direction of saying, you know, we're going to exclude almost everybody because their politics aren't sufficiently pure for us. I think really people are, would be right not not to trust us. Actually, there's a, a preprint um, from Azim Sharif, Corey Clark, and possibly some other people that shows that when you perceive scientific institutions to be politically biased, even if it's in the direction that you like, so I'm a Democrat and I see these institutions as being having a pro-left bias, you trust them less, right? So you basically, you lose the trust of everybody. Like people don't trust institutions that they think are biased and they probably shouldn't. People shouldn't trust institutions, period. Yes, we're <laughs> here, we're coming back. For a lot of reasons. <laughs> so, so how do you feel about, uh, about <clears throat> RFK Jr.? Huge fan. Huge fan, <laughs> early daughter. <donor. laughs> <clears throat> he's, he's a- No, but he's asking good <laughs> questions. Um, let me read this second paragraph, which is just shorter than the first. This is where I like have where they're totally justified uh, in not wanting to hire you all. <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> uh, so the letter continues in episode 92, Dr. Inbar discusses SPSB's implementation of DEI criteria. SPSB is the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. We're both members, we go to the yearly conference. Uh, implementation of DEI criteria as an additional method of evaluating submissions. Dr. Imbar highlights that the society's membership, quote, relative to the U.S. population, underrepresents white people and Hispanic and black, implicitly undermining, end quote, implicitly undermining and distilling down the complexities of access, structural inequality, and representation in spaces that are historically dominated both in proportion of people and ideological power by dominant group members, e.g., white, cisgendered, heterosexual, higher socioeconomic class, etc. He goes on to share his support for quote-unquote affirmative action, 
but states that, quote, there's this other stuff about using certain methodologies and if it's based on critical theory. And at that point, I'm like, come on. I don't think it's the job of the organization to be promoting certain subdisciplines that to me, that to me goes under the scientific quality of the work. And that these criteria, quote, give reviewers license to apply their existing political biases. End quote. This misunderstanding and or mischaracterization of the function of DEI criteria tells us that Dr. Imbar does not understand huh, nor value the need for an inclusive culture of academia, either interpersonally or intellectually, as a means of broadening and elevating the rigor of our science. What was the first part of that, Yoel, that they were saying? Like, what was like, if you wanted to get in their heads, what they're objecting to? I honestly don't understand the criticism. If it's talking about the kind of disparities between uh, population prevalence of racial or ethnic groups and their representation within the organization, that made them mad, and I don't understand why. Yeah, so one of the things that Yoel was, one of the points he was trying to make was, and I think it might be related to this, was that the policy of saying, well, uh, uh, Georgia has these strict anti-abortion laws, we have the conference in Atlanta, we shouldn't have it in Atlanta anymore because of this. And Yoel was saying, well, look, if you want to promote um, the diversity of SPSB's membership, shouldn't you take into account the fact that actually Hispanics and Blacks yeah. probably disproportionately, I should say, let me get it racist, Hispanic people and Black people <laughs> uh, usually actually have uh, uh, historically views that are more conservative on abortion than white people. So aren't you doing a disservice to our very people? And if you think that we should be uh, concerned about proportion, like the proportion of our membership, isn't it concerning that, say, Asians are way overrepresented um, compared to Hispanics and blacks in general? Right. Those I guess those are two separate points. They, they took offense to this. Yeah. I mean, I don't I wouldn't say I'm super worried about Asian overrepresentation per se. Um, I, I think I, I do think that we underrepresent some groups and that that's bad. Um, and when they said, you know, he voiced his support for affirmative action, like what I was saying was, if in the selection criteria, we want to say there's these underrepresented groups that we want to give a boost to, I think that's 100% defensible. Uh, what this yeah. whole controversy was about was the organization adding on another layer of you have to write an extra diversity statement. And that's kind of nebulously can include um, the subject population of your studies, the researcher identity, the kind of methods that you use. And then in some unclear way, they give it a diversity score that reflects, um, the, uh, that is then used to decide whether to accept the thing or not. So they just recently came out with a report that basically showed that these diversity scores actually weren't related to likelihood of acceptance at all. Right. So then you might ask, what's the whole point of the exercise, right? Like, which some people took it as like a yeah, win. How is that good? Like, see, right. you pe you people who were worried about these, like, actually being like problematic, yeah. like for for whatever you white cisgendered yeah. people. Um, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is the thing: it added just bullshit bureaucracy that doesn't address the actual problem to them isn't a cost. It's like a virtue. Yeah, and, right. and, and so right. it's like right. it's like yeah it didn't actually make it more diverse but like at least but it people demonstrates to, the values and it yeah. makes people think right. yeah that's literally what think people about say it. and, and I just right that's so I just I just get allergic to that stuff and, and 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 rightly so this is like you know this is one of the most frustrating things about privileged people coming into this space and trying to figure out how to make more work for everybody 
and, and not care about like the actual problem and just care about like what we can do to show that we care about the actual problem. And like, like I, I felt like this stuff was fading. I felt like this stuff is getting exposed for like the Robin D'Angelo bullshit, all this stuff. Like I thought this happening to you in 2020 wouldn't have surprised me as, as much as it happening now because I thought people were starting to like already get a little skeptical as to like what this added bureaucracy and all these new committees and all these new ways of trying to evaluate diversity, like what it was actually accomplishing and realizing, oh wait, this is just a way for like managers to make people work more for their image. But like, I guess not. I mean, I guess it depends where you look. Yeah. So, it, and the, the other kind of separate part of this um, is the abortion stuff, where just yeah. to be clear, I'm personally very pro-choice, but I just don't think it's the organization's job to be... You just don't think women should... <laughs> I think it's up to the men <laughs> who need to make this decision. But yeah, I, I just don't think that our professional organizations should be taking a, a public stand on stuff where there's, you know... I, I mean, I think it's 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 one thing if it's the kind of bigotry that we kind of, as a society, agree is just unacceptable. But if it's a live, um, debated moral issue where there is, for example, uh, conservative legal scholars or philosophers, not necessarily conservative even, who I really respect, who make pro-life arguments that I think are, they don't ultimately convince me, but I don't think they're invalid, right? right? So to say uh, taking a pro-life position is just beyond the pale that strikes me as too far. For the record, and to all search committees that I may apply to one day, like, I totally agree. Like, I think it's completely inappropriate on this issue, as much as I am, like, appalled by the Dobbs decision. Like, on this issue, for a professional organization to say that this is our official position, I think is inappropriate. This is, I think, a live moral issue I always am like I don't love when people say it's the conservatives who are really oppressed and they're marginalized. But in like in this case, like the like small group of pro-life conservative academics. For the record, I actually disagree with both of you. And I had this argument with Yoel. I think that a society that decides to like the crucial issue here was not like a statement of belief in political principle was it was like like every year we pick a state. And we give this state like thousands and thousands of our dollars. We bring we bring our whole society over. We pay a lot of money. They get something out of it. If we're going to pick states, let's pick states that represent something we believe morally, because I believe what you believe morally should matter in like where you're going to pick. Now, if in an ideal world, I think they should just put that shit up to a vote. If the society overwhelmingly believes that we shouldn't be in, in Georgia, then don't be in Georgia. Like, who else is going to decide? Like, I think that's perfectly appropriate. They didn't do that. They just assume everybody mm, right. agrees with that. But like, the membership should decide that. And honestly, being a member of SPSP doesn't like make or break my whether or not I can do social science. So like, if they do something that pisses me off, like if they decided to become a pro-life institution and like, <clears throat> say, like only support states that were pro-life, I would just quit. Like, I mean, I would say like, fuck you. Like, I'm not, I obviously right. don't belong in this yeah. society. Yeah, I mean, that's I think, fair enough. Like, I actually yeah. think that's a very plausible mm -hmm. position. 
Yeah, right. Like, I, I think professional organizations can decide to do business with some states or entities and not others, and that's fine. Yeah. I would have... Which is all fucking right. beside yeah. the point, because, like, right. the fact that you said that is fine. Like, it should have... Right. Ne- like, this is a discussion, a productive discussion that we just yeah. are having right the, now. Right. Like, the thing is, know. the position that you shouldn't be allowed to have the discussion, to me, seems fucking yeah, crazy. Just, yeah, yeah. I also... And I take your point also that, like, if you're one of these principled pro-life conservatives that happens to be in psychology, like, you can just quit and be principled about it, and that's fine. And, like, you know, everybody probably already knows you're pro-life anyway. I also disagree with Yoel that I think this makes people trust... Like, I, I don't know about that part of it. Like, I do think people are going to trust or not trust psychology independently of like what this is stuff that people don't know about that much yeah no i I, I, i'm not saying like this one specific decision i'm just saying like as a general norm we want to stay out of taking ideological stands because it's bad for our credibility yeah that's one that we should be applying broadly i I guess i'm uh uh, opposed i don't disagree with anything david said but like i'm a little opposed to the idea of taking a stand on an issue. I, I mean, I get it, though, because, you know, like I would have been more yeah, opposed to it, was it an before issue. the Dobbs decision, I guess. Um, after the Dobbs decision, it's like maybe this is the time to start taking a stand and sending signals. And this is something like a, a huge psychological or like psychology organization might have an impact on like like legislators, you know, just like saying like who are already probably conflicted if reluctant to go along with the party line on this because it's unpopular like maybe it's a good thing to just pile on the things that they just to give them more incentive to pass some law that will allow people women to have abortions in the states so i guess it's it's complicated especially after Dobbs. but it is i do feel like it's a live moral issue they're like it's, I guess you're right, Yoel. It could exclude some parts of your audience who are just like, okay, they're just politically, they're ideological. And so I don't trust what they're saying. I just talked myself out of what I started saying. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think like if you, I don't think there's anything about it being a live debate that speaks to whether or not it should be something that we base the decision on. Like it being a live debate is like, you, you, it's true that immigration is a live debate. It's true that accepting refugees is a live debate. These are all things that I have no problem yeah, taking a firm moral stance on whether or not people agree or Mass disagree. incarceration. But again, it's yeah. all, yeah, it's all sort of like, again, beside the point, because I, like, I don't think that this it's an offensive enough position that it would, A, ought to keep you out of being considered for position, and B, whether it actually reflects anything nefarious, racist, wrong, about Yoel's political beliefs, which I just wish they would take in the time to sit and ask him about and not. And I feel like a heads up to you that, uh, and an opportunity to say, like, I think you had the possibility, maybe not a good one, but a real possibility of saying like, hey, I know you guys might disagree with what I said. Like, I want to at least make clear what it is I believe and what it is I don't believe, like in this lunch with you, if you want, or a media, like have, and then you can decide, right? Like, just, it's decency to give a heads up about that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would have really welcomed the opportunity to have a serious conversation about this stuff. Um, And 
uh, yeah, I, I just feel like it's a missed opportunity and a really, it's sad, kind of. The, the idea of we can't talk to people that we disagree with about what are basically details, right? Yeah. Like, we, we really are, I mean, like, for all we were disagreeing about, like, oh, what should scientific societies do or not? It's like, we're all pro-choice, right? Like, so we really are just talking about details. And pro-diversity. It's yeah. really, pro -diversity. like, do you think this is bureaucratic bullshit or not? It's like, uh, that's the question. It really is. Like, is this an effective way to promote the goals that we both want? And I know that there are some people that don't want it, but that's not this. Like, that yeah, really right. isn't. Yeah. Hey, can I ask Yoel, uh, and maybe we can sort of end with, with a discussion of this. Um, do you have, so obviously the UC system is a, uh, a state school yep. and the laws about freedom of speech are pretty strict when it comes to state schools. Do you have any idea whether this runs afoul of, of laws? So I'm obviously, I'm not a lawyer. Um, my understanding is that there is a relevant precedent that's about loyalty oaths. So in the, what was it, 50s or 60s, the UCs tried to make professors sign a declaration that they weren't communists. Um, and there was a lawsuit about that, and the Supreme Court said, essentially, the government can't require you to espouse a set of political beliefs as a condition for being hired or retaining your job. Um, what they can do, of course, is to ask about stuff that's relevant to your ability to do the job. So I would say, you know, given how diverse the undergrad population of the UC is, it's totally relevant to say, is this somebody we think is going to be effective at teaching people of different backgrounds, right? And, and likewise, is this somebody who's going to be effective at mentoring grad students who come from different backgrounds? Totally relevant, totally legit, I think, as part of a job application. If you say, when you write your diversity statement, you have to take X perspective on the right way to do that, you have to adopt the right kind of theoretical ideological orientation. You could say, well, maybe that's compelled speech in the same way that a, a loyalty oath is. And there, there's somebody actually currently suing um, UC Santa Cruz on those grounds, right? I don't know how far that's going to get. I, I don't know the legal details, but it seems to me as a layperson that once you cross a line into prescribing the way in which people are supposed to talk about this, which some of the UCs do seem to have done, then you might be on shaky ground legally. It's fire. I know you're in contact with fire. Like, yeah. are they taking this case up in any way? I don't know what you would want uh, to happen, but like, what's their involvement in this? Uh, they were helping me try to access some documents around this. I, I have no interest in suing anybody. And um, I think, honestly, I'm going to drop the documents thing. I'm done with this. Uh, and I, you know, I, I wanted to talk about it publicly, but I don't want this to dominate my life. I don't want to go on a years-long crusade against UCLA. Um, I don't particularly resent most of the people there. I think they were trying to do the best that they could under a kind of a difficult set of pressures. Um, I do think that this is bad for the field. I, I, I think we need to have a conversation about, like, is this what we want to be? Um, and that's why I wanted to talk about it publicly. But as far as, like, trying to get something out of UCLA, no, I have zero interest in that. All right, well, Gen Z, you suck. <laughs> Cut off our lawn. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that the students who wrote the good letter, they're the same generation. They're the same background, right? It's not. And, yeah. and I, I've, I've been told that many of the graduate students signed onto that letter without having listened to the podcast, without like really deeply knowing what they were signing onto. And there's a sure. lot of social pressure. They probably, the way it was phrased, put an image that probably you could get in your mind of one of these 
This is Jordan uh, yeah. Peterson V2. I, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like right, you right, could get that. Right. And then you, you're like, both from, you know, it's like, I'm not going to go listen to it. That's the problem with the podcast. It's like, you're not going to yeah, listen. Like, to it. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, so. right. Yep. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm in, incensed and outraged and I'm glad yeah, you came thank on you. to talk uh, to us. Well, about it. thanks yeah. so much for having me on. And I know it's been a long road to get here and I wasn't ready to talk about it immediately. So I appreciate your guys' patience and really appreciate you having me on as a, especially because Tamler is taking such a strong public stance that now is like totally undermined <laughs> by this experience. And so, yeah, <laughs> it's really big of you, Tamler. Well, it's just because like I'm a reporter that worked on this story for so long, and then to finally see it come to fruition, <clears throat> like yes, my all my whole worldview is shattered, but like worth know. it though, totally yeah. worth it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. In spite of what you say, you'll tell your students like what you're doing right now. Like, probably can't help you, right? I definitely do not take my own advice. That yeah. is true. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope to be back soon. Thanks, man. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.